Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, a.k.a. Bitter Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, a.k.a. Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. Episode six of Pod Call Quest takes on black reparations. The murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many other black people that spurred a national and international reckoning with systemic racism and racialized violence has many people wondering whether the time for black reparations has finally arrived. In his victory speech, President-elect Biden noted that the African-American community always had his back, and he said it would have their back. Does this mean reparations will be on the agenda during his presidency? Do calls for black reparations help or hinder pursuit of progressive efforts to address the plight of the poor and working class people? Can black reparations abolish concentrated wealth? Can it put an end to intergenerational wealth transfers that keep the rich rich? Questions abound. Sage, yo, yo, yo. Um, tell folks where we've been a little bit and kind of like what we got on the, on the agenda today. All right. That's what's up. What's up, science? You good? What's up, man? It's good. It's good. I got the sun beaming in my face, which is always a good sign, especially in winter. I see, I hear you, man. It seems like it's been ages, man, since we last picked up the mic. I know it probably hasn't been all that long, but it do feel like it's been a minute. It and uh, and we got a lot to get through, as always. And so last time what we did was we sort of took up this question of how to think about the transition to a new president. And we looked at President-elect Biden's use of agency review teams. Uh, and these basically are teams of people that are put in charge of giving advice to the president-elect, vice president-elect about the agencies that basically are responsible for doing the work of government, giving them an assessment of current state of play with those agencies and perhaps offering recommendations about how they should be staffed and uh, uh, dealt with so that the transition to power can hit the ground running on day one. And one of the things that we identified was uh, who was at the table, basically, with mm. respect to these agency review teams. And we noted that the work of democracy doesn't really end on election day after we leave the ballot box, put our ballot in there and vote. Democracy has to be full time gig for all of us, staying engaged, staying involved and keeping an eye out on the representatives that get in office to do the people's work. And another way in which democracy has to work is for constant involvement of the demos throughout the entire process of governance. And so we noted that one perhaps missed opportunity, as far as we could tell for the transition team, was that it didn't sufficiently re reflect the wide diversity of voices that really should be at the table. So for example, when we think about mothers and fathers who have lost sons and daughters to police brutality. And we look at agency review teams that have to do with dealing with civil rights, oversight 
of police and so forth, are we seeing their voices represented on these teams? Mm. And so this raises a number of questions. If we do happen to get a seat at the table when it comes to governance, what do we ask for when they finally let us in the room and let us sit down and have some input? <laughs> what do we ask for when we're pushing our representatives to represent us? And then relatedly, where do we turn science for knowledge about what it is that the people want? In other words, how do we understand what the range of issues are that should be pushed on the public agenda? Whether it's Medicaid for all, Medicare for all, excuse me, higher wages, tuition-free public college or what have you. And thirdly, where should we turn for this knowledge? So science, how about you sort of get us started with some reflection on the main sources of knowledge for this kind of information, information about what the issues are, what the people want, what we should be doing when we do stay engaged democratically in different ways. What are the main sources of knowledge that politicians often turn to, that the media turns to, that scholars often rely upon when they want to know what the people want? Give us some sense, science, of the space of options when it comes to the knowledge pool for these things. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was um, as you as you were talking, I was just thinking um, um, I was like, I was like, oh, you know, what's kind of interesting thinking about how happy pe folks would just be to be in the room. Right. It's like uh, <laughs> you finally get in the room, you'd be like Disneyland and stuff. Your eyes are all wide open. Like, wow, this is what it's like to be back back in the house mm -hmm. and see <laughs> sit at the table. So mm -hmm. I'm like, I was just reflecting on people's conceptions of what it's like to be at the table. But I think um, there's many sources that could pe be relied upon, right? So there's surveys, um, which would be nationally representative, or you could kind of like um, subset parts of the population. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, you got focus groups, which is kind of like, you know, active groups in the community that get together and they're kind of like leaders and they give you insights of what's going on. Um, you could do interviews um, or you could kind of like stretch it out a little bit, right? Now you have people who could take all content on Twitter or all content from Facebook or all content from speeches and then do a content analysis of the text and figure out what's in it. Um, now these, these sources are useful in many respects, but they, they should immediately make you jump to think about, okay, well, who, who is being asked. And so on like a census, right? A census is important for, for us to understand because the census is everybody. And a survey and all the other sources I've mentioned are basically subsets of a particular tech, um, like community. Like, and you can content analyze Twitter, but remember Twitter's text isn't everybody and it's not everything on the internet. And it's difficult, just imagine doing a search for a word and then stuff comes up. It's like, okay, we don't normally, we don't really scroll past the fifth page, so we don't really get all of it. But yo, computers are now capable of getting all this information. So it's useful to think about who is being asked. But then we have a different dimension, which is what is being told. So it's like, we know from survey information that black folk are just more likely to tell other black people that are interviewing them or people that they think are black. They're more likely to tell them more than if they're being interviewed by a white person. Mm. And so um, I need to see, I'm not quite sure of the research now on kind of like um, 
computer interfaces where you take out the human component and basically you're just kind of looking at a screen mm. and there's no voice or perception at all. But the language is probably a proxy for that, right? So if the language sounds like it's if the language sounds like it's black, you might be more likely to answer differently than you would. And I think there's gender effects as well. And so the survey interface is quite is quite fascinating with regards to what you'll tell you. But I, I thought immediately this, um, you know, my, I'm, a, I'm a huge James Scott fan, um, political science and anthropologist at Yale. Um, but Jim Scott's got this idea of um, what he calls uh, uh, the public versus uh, the hidden transcript. Mm. And and the public transcript is like the stuff you'll talk about it in in open and you don't mind who hears you because you basically are kind of like communicating in a way that you view to be safe. Mm -hmm. And that might involve certain topics or certain ways of talking about it. But this is always juxtaposed against the hidden narrative or the hidden transcript. And that's the stuff that you wouldn't tell people who are in power because mm. you're afraid of what they might do to you. Mm. It's what you might say to your boys or your girls in like um, in the neighborhood mm -hmm. or in, in your house or in a space that you believe to be safe. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes important because if someone's asking you a survey question, you might view that as the public space and then you're not going to tell them everything or you might be interviewed and you might you might not trust the interviewer so there's a bunch of ways that you might get to some people but you're not going to get to all the information that they have because they don't trust mm. um, another limitation and then i like you got something yeah let me let me that's that's really yeah. fascinating let's hit that don't forget don't lose your train of thought but let's gotcha, let's, gotcha. let's let's stick with this point about trust it's this first point yeah um so this reminds me of something i, I was rapping with my my youngest daughter about this recently. So she's pursuing a master's degree in public health. And her, her background is, is in uh, public health, uh, international relations and Spanish. Mm. So she just had this wonderful opportunity to basically use her Spanish skills to do some content, contact tracing um, with respect to COVID in uh, underserved, underserved uh, Spanish-speaking communities in, um, uh, in the uh, Kansas City, Kansas area. And one of the conversations we had that speaks directly to this distinction you just made between the public and the hidden transcript is the challenge that she said is encountered by people that want to talk to Spanish speaking communities yeah, who yeah. then have to report right their whereabouts. They got to talk about who's in their household. These are the things that the contact tracer has to establish to try to figure out who they've been in touch with. Mm. And she said that there's real sort of concern in these communities. People don't really want to be forthcoming because they worry, as you said, that what they're sharing could be something that might be used against them. It could hurt a friend or a family member. And so I could see within this process, there's certainly like a public versus hidden transcript distinction. And one mm -hmm. of the things that I think helps, my daughter suggested, with having a Spanish speaker engage with them is that might be one way to relax yeah. people so that they maybe feel a little bit more uh, uh a willingness to open up to somebody who speaks their language, who understands something about their community culture and practices. So can you say something about this dimension? Or, or is there reason to think that some of these kinds of factors might help get at maybe that, that hidden transcript, put people more at ease? Is there something like that at, at work too when we, when we think about surveys? 
I think this is directly in line with um, the kind of race of the interviewer effect I mentioned before. Mm. I mean, so, so mm. the whole, the whole, the whole differential that you'll make where you'll, where you'll jump from the kind of the public to the hidden transcript mm. is your degree of comfort. Mm. It's like, if you believe that you are comfortable and safe in an environment, mm. this makes complete sense, right? You'll feel more comfortable communicating different types of information. Mm. So the difficulty about extracting information is you need to approximate that space. You mm. need to make people feel comfortable and safe. So, and so electronically, you want to make sure that stuff is encrypted or in person, you want to make, you want to make it sound, you want to make the person sound like they're basically talking to their best friend. Mm. And so you want to approximate this environment. And so this is directly the point, but then you're missing out on a lot of information, right? If you're not doing stuff in the language that the people feel most comfortable in. Mm. So a lot of us surveys are done in English, right? And so we then run into a problem where it's like a big issue about trying to conduct surveys in the language that's going to be most comfortable with people. So we want Spanish, we want Mandarin, we want um, Thai, we want Hindi. I mean, like, it's just like, you know, it's like we really want to kind of do it in whatever language will make people feel the most comfortable. And I think that's, um, that's the issue, establishing that comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I wonder if there's a sort of, this is just on the same point, if there's sort of a, a, an additional point to be made. Um, so certainly in the political science literature, people have written a lot about descriptive representation. Mm. Um, and, and the suggestion is that people prefer to be represented by people who look like them, who speak their language, who share their religious beliefs, etc. Now, we also know, however, that people have basically been screwed over yeah. by people that look like them, that speak their language, that share their gender, etc. And one of the things that sometimes gets missed, perhaps by people who advocate for descriptive representation, is that you have to, at some point, go beyond these uh, identity attachments yeah. and look at the substance of what people actually deliver for you. So let's, let's, you know, let's speak to this. Is there, is, can we push this analogy a little bit more to think mm-hmm. about descriptive representation, its, its limits and its possibilities? And I know you got all kinds of stuff to say about this science. This deep, actually, I had not made that connection until you just said that. Oh, but, okay. Um, it's, um, so the whole race of interviewer effect thing is a direct manifestation of the same descriptive representation point, right? Mm-hmm. You want to talk to someone who gets you. You want to talk to yourself, basically. And so in line with descriptive representation, you want to be represented by yourself. It just occurred to me that that basically is the same kind of process. Mm-hmm. And so um, whether or not the survey environment or political leadership is trying to kind of like approximate you, they're basically trying to kind of like mirror your identity to try to get you to feel more comfortable or relaxed or in a sense disengaged, right? And so it's like, um, so Manker Olson talks about this whole thing about the collective action problem. And his whole point is basically, it's like, okay, if you have a concern, let's say with housing or something like that, and there's a housing organization that's supposedly going to take care of your interest, then you feel alleviated from having to do anything because you're just like, okay, they got me. Now, the critiques of descriptive, descriptive representation are the same thing, right? It's just like, well, you know, wealthy folks are more than capable of finding some descriptive representation of a particular population. Mm-hmm. And then they get that person to advocate 
on your behalf. You see yourself in them, so you vote for them, but this is their person, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, but then this disengages people because they're just like, okay, I don't need to do anything else because, yo, they got me. They understand where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. And so it's dangerous in the sense that the minute we become these embodiments of descriptive characteristics, mm-hmm. then someone can find someone who looks like you or looks like the audience you're trying to control mm-hmm. and they and they basically own them and put them before you. And then other folks are kind of like, um, wait, 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 I'm more than this particular identity. We need to go deeper. Mm-hmm. And so the script of representation is so dangerous in a sense because it's just like, okay, as long as, as, long as someone could look in the mirror, then we're good to go. Mm-hmm. And this always bothers me because it gets away from, you know, I thought King was like, we're supposed to get to the content of somebody's character. Mm-hmm. You know, forget, not, not for necessarily forget the identity, mm-hmm. but it's just like, look a little deeper or, or, or take Malcolm, right? He'd be like, you know, okay, when Malcolm came back from Mecca, he was just like, hey, look, you know, basically he was saying we need to go beyond mm-hmm. the descriptive characteristics because I had white Muslims that I was like, you know, I was, I was going to prayer with. And so mm-hmm. it's really, it's really interesting how the two of them kind of come back in different ways, but it's still a critique against, I think, descriptive representation. No, that's powerful. And just as a parenthetical note, I mean, I think one sort of common theme that we find, whether you're thinking about the late Martin Luther King later in his life, when he started to talk about the war in Vietnam and uh, global injustice, or you think about Malcolm after the Hajj to Mecca, and he came back talking about worldwide white supremacy mm-hmm. and, 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 and um, as it related to capital, you find that one sort of theme is like this black internationalism is what often leads some of these thinkers to sort of break out of the descriptive representation mold that we want to put them in and have a wider lens with which to view which view which with which to view the world and i think i think that's something we see in malcolm i think that's something we see in king i think it's something we see in angela davis although she's more consistently with that frame throughout her career so that's that's a nice point now just just sort of just taking us back uh, to the to the issue now so okay so we've got a number of options, surveys, focus groups, interviews, scraping social media and text for content analysis. This this you're telling us science constitutes the range of options yeah. from which uh, politicians, the public, the media draws information about what the people want. Now, we've touched on this a little bit just with a couple of examples we looked at. But can you say a little bit more about what you think are some of the reasons we have to worry yeah. that the that current menu of options for gathering knowledge about what the demos wants, what the issues are that should be pursued is somehow inadequate in helping us to more fully come to terms with what the people want? Um, just, just give us a bit more to sort of chew on us, let us feel like maybe there's there's something here that we're not quite getting from the current menu of options. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think, so all the sources have interesting strengths and limitations, right? And so um, a census gets you to everyone, but it's expensive. That's why only states basically engage in sensei, which is like highly problematic in a different way, right? Um, and, and surveys get to many people, um, but two things, right? It's a, 
So most surveys have a very difficult time getting to poor folk, and that's because either they don't have a means for you to get to them, or they're not going to waste their time on some damn survey that's not related to them trying to to basically handle paying the rent and getting some food. Um, But then we also have the issue of um, what is asked and how it's framed. And so how questions, which questions are asked and how those questions are framed are very problematic. And there's a lot of work that goes into you know, question framing, right? Which is really kind of frustrating in many respects because if someone's not using your language, if someone's not saying something in a way that you either give a damn about it mm. or you understand really what they're getting at, this is problematic. And most survey firms, they're not doing open-ended questions. It's, it's just basically a formula. It's like, here's the question we want to ask you and here's, here's, here's a range of answers you can give us. And rarely do they go to other and rarely do they just leave it open and let you answer the way you want to, because someone on the back end has got to sort through that and figure out what to do. Put some meat on that bone. Put some meat on that bone for us, science. Give us an example of a of a of a typical question we might see on the survey and a what you think is a better question that we, we could see on a survey. Yeah. I mean, so like in the work we did, I mean, like so most people ask, um, um, are you do you view yourself as being on the left or the right? And then they'll give you they'll give you a placement of, of like or they'll ask you, um, how do you feel the, the current president is doing? And like a feeling thermometer question. Mm. Um, and so left, right is kind of informative, but there's so much built into left. There's so much built into right. Right. And so we stepped away from that and we were kind of like um, your your left or rightness, your your orientation in terms of that identity really doesn't tell you about what you think is wrong in the world. And, and what you're willing to do about it or how bad you think it is. And so we, in our surveys, like recently we asked, because we, <laughs> we have a post-election survey that's currently underway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we asked basically, um, how satisfied are you with the current um, political, economic, and cultural systems? And, and these are separate questions, right? Um, so we asked somebody that, and then we're just like, um, do you believe that things are okay? Do they need minor changes or do they need major changes? And we ask or we allow for someone to basically write in what they think is the problem. And this provides a a lot more information. Good. Well, this is this is something that we should um, we should talk more about. uh, As we as we sort of move forward. Uh, I think I had a little technical glitch right there. You know, this is what happens, science, when you're working with technology, man. It's, it's not always it's not always reliable. I think my internet connect, my internet connection might have wavered for just a second, but but okay. you can you can still hear me, right? I can indeed. Okay, good deal. So okay, so now let's say we get at the table. We they let us they let us, they let the people in the room uh, either to sort of give some advice about who should sit on the agency review teams. Or after, let's say, the, pre- the president-elect takes office, they, they start to consult more widely with, with people from different walks of life. We know for sure that consulting with some people, they're going to say, hey, look, OK, um, President Biden, you made it a point to say in your victory speech that African-Americans had your back. They always had your back. And you also said that you're going to have their back. Now, what exactly does that mean? Some people are going to ask. Does it mean, for example, that you're going to get behind 
this long ending struggle to make sure black people get what they have coming, namely a reparations check. <laughs> um, now, if you talk to some of our most progressive voices, they're going to tell you that they actually do mean a check. Um, it, they, they, they understand people that want to talk about, you know, investing money in the community, uh, in, in, in black communities. They understand, you know, other forms of symbolic uh, repair for the damage done by slavery. But they're going to tell you checks should be cut for black people in the way the checks were cut for the Holocaust, for 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 um, Japanese uh, internment. Yeah. Uh, and, and other other examples you can give us about reparations effort around the globe. Now, as as for the justification for why the check should be cut, some people are going to say that this is needed to make good on addressing the legacy of systemic racism, racialized violence, and the ongoing harm endured by American descendants of slaves. Now, of course, the naysayers. Uh, are going to say and have said, look, man, yeah, this happened a long time ago. The perpetrators and the victims are long gone. Uh, America turned the corner on all of this and we've had black representation. We, we have many examples of black people that have done well. Reparations is not something we need to sort of worry about at this point. So my question for you, science, is when you're looking at some of the sources that give us information about what people want. We know our survey speaks generally about the need for economic, political, social, cultural reform and measures that in different ways. But do we know anything about whether populations not typically surveyed in these, in these sort of information gathering tools actually want race specific remedies such mm -hmm. as reparations? to address their basic needs. Is this an issue that we find some support for uh, or some evidence that people actually want when they're sort of raising their concerns? It's interesting, man. So um, you're getting, we're getting different types of survey evidence, right? So I remember something in CNN um, 2019, it was like nearly 75% of African-Americans supported reparations. So there's some like movement around, but now I think we've hit like relatively all time highs. So there's a group that I study, um, the Republic of New Africa, that turned into uh, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America and COBRA. And they were functioning through the 70s and 80s and a little bit up to the present, but not not as popular. And, you know, needless to say, um, they were not receiving 75 percent of black folk. Um, it was a, it was a much smaller number. Um, and then broader support for reparations. I think we've now hit like um, there's widespread support. I believe that um, that um, racial inequalities have existed, but I think there's still a little pushback. I remember there was um, there was a, a, a some um, some survey reported in the Hill where like one in five supported reparations. But I remember seeing something else. I think. Um, 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 an AP piece um, that most Americans still oppose reparations for slavery, and so we can we'll, we'll post um, we'll post on the website um, doingtheknowledge.com. We'll we'll we'll, we'll cite um, all these different surveys. But this is an interesting moment because people are seemingly more aware of racial inequities and um, a lot of the systemic violence. 
Um, and reparations is one of the things that is being discussed. Um, but I, I think we're seeing that big differential in support. Um, black people are like more likely clearly ready for it. Um, the, the larger population, I think, is like maybe 29 percent for like the whole population, non-blonde black folks. So um, some amazing variation with regards to exactly what that is. But then this comes back to, in many respects, who they asked, how they asked them, who they believe was asking and kind of like what, what they uh, what they had to say. Mm. Well, let, let's sort of stick with this for just a second, because you and I have had uh, ongoing conversations about about this topic. Yeah. And I know what at, at one point we were thinking a bit about the character of or the form mm-hmm. of reparations arguments. And, and we noted that, you know, as people would say, reparations is about repairing uh, what was lost, what damage was done by uh by slavery segregation and its legacy yeah now when the argument or the call for reparations takes that form it it requires us to look back science yeah yeah it, it requires us to look to our past and it requires us also to have a story to tell about the relationship between that past and our present Mm. It requires us to counter other narratives about the relationship between our past and our present to clear space for our pro reparations position. So, for example, uh, you know, we got to be able to tell a story about how, although there are no living descendants of slaves or no living slave. I'm sorry, scratch that. There are no there are no slaves still alive today that were slaves, you know, obviously uh, in in 18, uh, 18, uh, uh, 60, let's say, mm-hmm. and no, no slaveholders. Mm-hmm. There has been sort of something that still links. Yeah. That past to our present. Yeah. Now, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, as you remember, he, he was invited to speak to a congressional committee. And he wrote the piece that obviously many people have read uh, on reparations in the Atlantic. And at that hearing, he talked about this ongoing injury from that past. Right. How do we think how should we think about this sort of requirement that has us looking back? When we're also thinking about how to deal with something like the wealth gap science, Mm. Can we sort of think about the wealth gap? Can we think about the intergenerational transmission of wealth and the remedies that we might have for that problem while we're looking back? I know that's a lot to chew on, man, but you know, yeah, man, it is, you it know is. sometimes I'll be saging out, man. I got these long, Indeed, these long, say, these long questions and these long sentences. And that's just, don't yeah, play. No, they don't play, man. They just it's a stream of consciousness. And once we roll, we roll. But anyway, they, you got you got the point. Well, I, I mean, I, I was <laughs> the very the very science oriented, practical version of me is like, well, reparations is a huge ass abstract concept. Mm. And, and thus many do not favor it in many respects, I think, because of 
it's sheer largesse. Mm. But it's interesting that people have received momentum on it because in many respects, um, the sheer number of inequalities has not, I mean, driving while is just like, it's like a meme, right? Driving mm. while what? Mm. While banking, while walking, while, you know, trying to shop while trying to go to the doctor. I mean, like, it's like, it's like, it's funny, right? Rather than call it white supremacy or racism, we're calling it um, black while blah, 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 mm. um, or banking while black or whatever. Mm. Um, what's interesting is, um, so the needs are clear in many ways, but they're framed differently across different audiences. And so, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Maslow and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And like Maslow starts with this, you know, we have physiological needs, food, water, warmth, rest. And I'm just like, okay, you know what? We need to handle that. Or we next have safety needs, security and safety, also important, but clearly not as important as the base. If you don't have food, water and warmth and rest of this, there's nothing to secure. Um, but then the higher order needs, um, I think he called them psychological belongingness and love. Um, and then esteem needs, prestige and then self-actualization. You know, one's feeling that, you know, um, you're reaching your full potential. And so I think what's interesting is in the conversations of reparations, it's like um, we're talking about some basic needs that were not provided. So anti-black violence clearly is a violation of safety needs and um, deprivation of decent food, warmth and rest and so forth is a clear violation of physiological needs. And so those elements are, those elements are very clear, but exactly how do you repair that harm? How do you, how do you fix that? And that becomes interesting because then we're, we're really trying to look at uh, and, and some of the legal conversations push you there as well, right? This is like, because there's this running counterfactual. It's just like, okay, so what would these people, what would what would what would the, the victims of this particular abuse be like had this abuse not had happened? Mm -hmm. And can we get folks back to that point? And so that becomes the interesting element because then we're trying to figure out exactly how to get someone to um, a state of non-abuseness. And, and what becomes problematic because it seems like the time span on that reconstitution or the con the time span on that repair seems like almost instantaneous. It's just mm. like immediately upon getting the check, you should shut the F up because now we need to move on. Mm. And it's like, I don't really think that things work like that, right? Because it took, in our context, it took several hundred years to, 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 to subject the particular population to those particular abuses. So... There's no way in heck you're going to get some check that's going to basically make up for that thing that'll be instantaneously changed because in part it's one-sided, right? We've talked about this before. It's like, you know, we live in a community, we live in a, we live in a society of interaction. So how can you fix one side or address one side without addressing the other? Mm. Well, well, science, I'll, I, I imagine that some people going to respond to that by saying, I still want my shit. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't know. I still want my money. <laughs> right? right? Like you could, you could say all that. I mean, yeah, we're not going, we're not going to solve all the world's problems with me getting my check, but I still want it. And, and they might even go so far as to say it's oh, it's old to me. Right. Mm. And, and, and why is it that when it's time for black people to get theirs, that people got to come up with excuses about why they can't have it. Yeah. So there, there is there is that issue. But 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 there, there's another distinction. One distinction to be made is arguments that have us look back rather than, let's say, look forward. And, you know, we, we won't really touch that right this minute. But the other thing I think I want us to touch on is is this relationship between the idea of cutting the checks 
and closing America's wealth gap. Yeah. Right. That's that's another piece of this. Right. Science. So one of one of one of one of our most brilliant writers and thinkers today is Nicole Hannah Jones. I mean, you know how much I I love her work. Just just a huge fan. And, and, And obviously, I think she needs to be more widely read and appreciated uh than than she is but but certainly in my book she's a she's a giant right now she's she's in the tradition of of the great ida b wells as far as i'm concerned particularly with the work that she's done on the failure of the american education public education system to deliver uh the same quality of education to all all of our children um including those in, in public schools now one of the things that she's done, and I think probably a task for another episode is to look more closely at a piece that she published this past summer on reparations, which highlighted oh, yeah. the wealth gap. Yeah. So one of the things I know that uh, Hannah Jones believes is that, look, she understands that some people are going to respond with skepticism to reparations, right? And one counter to that for her is to say, well, look, reparations is going to benefit all of society. Because it's going to contribute to closing the wealth gap. And that's good for America. Now, the thought, though, is that it's going to contribute to closing the wealth gap because it's going to put more it's going to put more money in black people's pockets so that they could accumulate wealth. They could buy a home. They could maybe invest in in a business or grow a business that they already have. And they can invest in more opportunity, educational opportunity for their kids. Right. So. There's this thought that the way to close the wealth gap is to sort of lift up the bottom. Yeah. And the reparations are going to help with lifting up the bottom. Now, what do you think about that science? Is that going to be what we need to put a dent in the wealth gap? Yeah. You know, we, we have talked about this. I mean, my thing is like, it's, it is it's it's complex right but my my thing is um okay so um we cut folks a check i think of i think of the lottery right we from new york so you know you got to be in it to win it mm-hmm. and i remember all the stories about black folk getting a check and then within 3 years they've lost the money and or they're basically back to where they were before and so there's something that i worry about it's like it it seems like it would be more of like a stimulus check than it would be the reconstitution mm-hmm of equality in terms of economic terms, because, okay, so folks get the check and then what happens? Then what do they do? Then individually, how, I mean, cause we didn't suffer individually, we suffered individually and collectively. And so the reparations individualized checks aren't gonna get there. But the thing that is most bothersome perhaps is giving black folks some, some, some wealth is not going to counteract or otherwise deal with the fact of the huge inequalities that exist now with a community that is going to continue to generate wealth and income off of what they already have. It's like the reparations thing treats one side of the problem without necessarily hindering, capping, limiting the growth of the other side. We, we own, we own, we own relative to another group. We spend relative to another group we can acquire relative to another group. And so just giving one side some cash doesn't actually equate back, I think. Mm. 
Yeah, well, this is this is tough for a lot of lot of reasons. I mean, and again, thinking about what happens, particularly when when neglected certain neglected populations, uh, including you know everyday everyday black 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 and brown folks, do get an opportunity to say what they want mm. to articulate their issues. Some people are going to put some black folks are going to put put things on the table that sh- they think will help black people in particular in black communities. And so one way to think about reparations is just it's just of a it's just a part of a set of things that people think society should do for black people. Mm. Right. Um, and, and so, for example, on, on this point. For example, uh Hannah Jones recognizes, as, as, as you know, many insightful people do, that some people are going to say, well, look, the poor whites in Appalachia are suffering, too. Right. They, they, they don't have jobs. They're dealing with forms of addiction, opioids and uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And how is how is black reparations going to sort of help their struggles with poverty, with mm-hmm. Income and wealth inequality. Yeah. Now, 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 now. Here's here's the kicker. Pro reparations folks are going to say, "Look, we have to address a singular harm to black people, which has to do with this legacy of slavery and the system of racial apartheid that followed it for so many years in the United States." Mm. But that doesn't mean we should also deal with these more broader universal issues, right? Like anti-poverty programs or medic, medic, Medicare, medic, Medicare for all. Yeah, it's yeah. just that we have to recognize that there's been some singular harm done to black folks that needs to be repaired. Now, here's, here's what tends to happen. And you notice, know science, mm. we'll get a progressive voice in politics every now and then. Like like a Bernie Sanders or like an AOC mm. who come along and who will be talking about the problem with concentrated wealth in America. Yeah. The problem with having one of the richest nations in the world with people living on the street. They don't have a roof over their head. They don't have enough food to eat. They can't afford to elevate themselves or their children because the cost of schooling is too great. Right. In other words, we'll get an AOC uh, to come along every so often that calls attention to the whole range of issues that are tied to a diagnosis that's mm-hmm. rooted in the problem with concentrated wealth. Yeah. Now, they seem to then have a conflict because on the one hand, they're going to be constituents that want to get behind them, that want to push them to deal with these race specific remedies that are linked to a diagnosis that's rooted in the, the, the foundational evil, they might say, of white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. Versus a diagnosis, as Du Bois might put it, that talks about not so much color cast or not merely color cast, but color cast for profit. Yeah. And see the quest for profit and, and uncontrolled and unconstrained wealth for the few as the primary diagnosis that needs a remedy. Speak to this science. Well, well, what, you know, what, what, you know, they, what do they do with this? 
we gonna be in so much trouble. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's like, yeah. what's interesting though about the the, the pivot, right? Is just mm. like it gets back to the question of what is the singular harm? Mm. Is the singular harm racism and white supremacy, or is the singular harm capitalism? Mm. And do those two interact in ways? And which ways should we privilege a prognosis? and a means to redress that particular problem. Because if you're focused on the racism and white supremacism, and that's going to determine the way in which you're gonna to try to remedy the harm, but you're leaving intact the, let's say, the wealth concentration generated by capitalism that basically has used racism in particular ways to kind of like shelter and hide itself, then, we'd have the wrong diagnosis, we'd be led to the wrong means and we wouldn't resolve the problem. I mean, but the the minute we start talking about black reparations, we've already limited it and taken a particular framing mm. as opposed to saying, we need to repair America from the damage done by capitalism. Mm. And that might involve reparations going to white folks in Appalachia. It might involve going to white folks that suffered from deindustrialization in Flint. And that's going to be like a huge conversation because mm. everyone, they hear the word reparations and like black is implied in front of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, man, this is this is this is a handful. And it, it, it makes me think. Think about. Some of it makes me think about. Uh, my younger self. Uh, mm. My my. Uh, my. Recently departed uh, aunt, I called I called her Aunt Rain. She uh, she had a nickname for me uh, when I was growing up, called me Splozak. And uh, <laughs> and so I'm sitting here thinking about Splozak right now. I, I was you know I was I was actually born in the Boogie Down in uh, in one of the poorest districts in the country. Uh, I was born in. Parkchester General Hospital. It's no longer there, but it, it's uh, you know, it's an area in the Bronx, and uh, but I grew up, you know, in in the iconic Queensbridge public housing projects, mm. and I tell my kids this. I don't think they fully appreciate it all the time, but they're basically <laughs> the first generation in, in my family that that will not have lived or spent any real time in public housing. Damn. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and the thing is, science, like, both, both of my parents grew up in the same projects. And, and, and their parents made the great migration that eventually landed them in, in Queensbridge. And, and, and on my mother's side, you know, the family was one of the first black families in Queensbridge public housing. And, you know, not long after it, it opened. Damn. And man, growing up there, man, we, we, we have family struggles with all the things that many families in disadvantaged circumstances struggle with, um, including drug addiction, death of family members because of AIDS, incarceration, you know, dire poverty violence, abuse in the home, just something I had to deal with, unfortunately, mm. like so many other people, mm. psychological and physical. And it's funny, man, I think about Splozak in a, 
all the, all the times he spent in the River Park looking, looking out across the East River past Roosevelt Island, across the 59th Street Bridge into Manhattan, looking at the bright lights. And, you know, for me, man, it's like the class stuff was always more salient mm. rather than the race stuff, because like everybody in the projects was poor. <laughs> you know, I had I had one of my partners, Gilberto, lived in my building, Spanish cat, had a couple of white neighbors, not very many. But nobody had ducats. Everybody mm. was is struggling with like just being in public housing and all that that meant. And I think it had a lot to do with why I think from the beginning, I was thinking about like whiteness, white supremacy, but more so thinking about it as playing a functional role mm -hmm. in America and globally. And I didn't have the words to sort of express this then, but you know, Splozak, the young Splozak was philosophical from day one. You know, that's what I tried to lay out on the TED talk doing, doing the knowledge science. And the two main functions as I saw it was White supremacy basically was a way to tell a story about white superiority that served to divide poor and working people, to keep them from coming together to put democratic government to work for achieving a more just, humane, and, and healthy world for everybody. Damn. And the second function it served is to prevent us from coming together to abolish concentrated wealth. And the system of tax breaks for the rich that enabled them to avoid paying their fair share of taxes and allowed them to pass off their money to their kin and to future generations. And so for me, like the orientation was never just like, yeah, white, white supremacy, racism is the root of all of our problems. It was like, no, that's being used. One, to disempower us. And two, to basically keep us financially insecure. So, science, what are people going to say, for example, if you and I get together, as we plan to do, and think about how progressive reform is really going to require radically restructuring the U.S. tax code? What kind of names are they going to call? <laughs> are they going to tell us it's impractical? Impractical? Are they going to say it cuts at the core of what it is to be an American that is cuts against that, which is about working your way up the ladder or out of the projects, in my case, by hard work, grit, determination, creating some wealth for yourself and your family and passing it on to your kids so that they can live well or even better than we did. What they what they going to say when we say, hey, yeah, people have been talking about cutting checks circulating them. But what if we do something more? What if we say, hey, we need to really rethink this tax code and how it allows us to transfer wealth? What they going to say, friends? I mean, clearly we would then be uh, some some version of socialists clearly will be called impractical or naive. But I think I think what we need to do is we need to find some way of navigating past these labeling shortcuts, mm. um, socialism, impractical, uh, Democrat, Republican. It's like uh, they're, they're now comfortable, but they're not necessarily informative. I mean, we, we talk about politics all the time, but the alternatives are not known because some of these shortcuts are like conversation stoppers. Basically, they just kind of they just suspend interaction. I think what we're talking about here, though, is 
I think we're, tr- we're trying to create and communicate a new way to talk about problems that exist around us, a new way to talk about where we go, and a new way to talk about how we get there in a way that both informs as well as invites use. I mean, the, the, the basics of the Ptolemy bit, right? It's like we, we, we're discussing politics, economics, and culture, but essentially each one of those is on a dimension, right? Where it's like it's restrictive, narrow, and authoritarian on one end and open, wide, and democratic on the other, but politically, economically, and culturally. And that, I think, is a different way of thinking, right? So then we talk about, oh, you're, oh, you're a narrow politics person, mm. or you're, you're an expansive culturalist. I mean, we need to change the way that we talk about people and then even get away from, like, you know, forget talking about, like, you know, isms, right? We'd be like, oh, you're an economics, politics, culture person, or you're a culture, politics person. Mm. We need to basically kind of identify in a precise manner exactly who people are and what they're trying to advocate and get away from these, these labels that stop conversation. Someone starts to do something the minute they're called a communist or socialist or anarchist, it's done. We're done listening, mm. most folks. And so we need to get to the particularities of what people are saying and how they're saying it. And then acknowledge that also we don't, we not only have three topics, politics, economics, and culture, but we have like three different slices at it. We got your diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where you want to go and the means to get there. And those could have different levels of emphasis, right? And so that's a lot, but I think we need to get to that point or we're, we're just, because basically I think we're stuck, man. Mm. I mean, I think we're just stuck and basically we can't get to resolving our problems or even talking about them because these blockages exist to kind of like getting us to deeper understanding. You can cut education and you can like start to stigmatize people with labels, but you know, I don't think I don't think we should care. And speaking of not caring, I'm like, I don't care about being impractical. Mm. I mean, like, you know, breaking free from Britain wasn't impractical at the time, but mm. necessary. I mean, ending slavery was impractical at the time. Mm. Giving women the right to vote was impractical at the time. Forget mm. impracticality. Mm. Let's get to efficiency. Let's get to resolving these problems. Mm. No, that's that's powerful science, man. And uh, man, it's man. I, I so appreciate your wisdom, brother. Man, it's just. Building with you is, is always a is a blessing and, and, and is uplifting for me. Um, and as you're talking right now, you know I've struggled with this. I think existentially, I, 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 this this must just be something that's part of my constitution, man. It's like we 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 have a, we have some real luxuries, science, you and I. And it's not that they haven't been hard won. Um. Because they have been, we've had to deal with a lot in our different journeys, but we did make a journey that has resulted in a life that has, 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 has given us many, many comforts mm. and has allowed us to sharpen some really useful and important skills. So one existential thing that, you know, I deal with like, man, is like, to what end science? Yeah. Like, like, a, like another, another journal article, another book, another interview, you know, even, even another, another seminar. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can we, can we aspire to something more science? Can we, can we aspire to bring our knowledge, our tools and our craft to people in the world that are identifying issues 
like poverty, like inequality, like systemic racism, and trying to organize communities who are disproportionately impacted by those issues so that they could bring about some lasting change. Is there any way, man, to take the gifts, the, the blessings, the opportunities that you and I have and put it into service, to put Ptolemy into service to help support some of this vital work that's being done by our activists, our organizers, our progressive politicians. What can we what can we do, brother? You know I'm struggling with this. You saging out like a mug today, man. Damn. Oh, wow. Okay. You like dropping nuclear weapons today. So uh, in many respects, man, it's interesting, right? Like um, you know, we're <laughs> we're doing this over the internet. We're not in the same physical space. Maybe we're in the same psychological space though, mm. right? Mm. So mm. I think in many ways, I would, I would say spiritual space, but I got indeed, you. Which, indeed, indeed. Yeah. In many respects, I think we were we were pushed or pulled out of our respective communities and found ourselves in a location where the acquisition of knowledge became like preeminent in terms of the things we wanted to do. But it's like just because we left the hood, just because we left Queensbridge and Manhattan, didn't mean that it left us. Mm. I think those those experiences are indelibly connected to our personalities and everything we do, the way we do it. And I think that's, that's there. But in many respects, I think, I feel like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we're like Manchurian candidates for justice, man. Mm. We've been like, we've been in the machine. We've been in the institution and we just been waiting for that call. Mm. And once we heard that call, we were going to enact in a way that kind of like led to social justice. And I think, I think we've hit that space. This, I think that's what we're doing. I think how we're doing it. And you remember Drop Squad, the Spike Lee movie? Yeah, you know that. That's right. That's right. And like, you know, they had to give out them interventions. Exactly. And then Drop Squad run around, they kidnap people and reprogram them to be black. I'm just like, I think we're like, we're like going to do, we're doing the, the pod version of that where effectively we're going to, we're interacting with folks. We're grabbing some folks and we're trying to reprogram them to understand and to think and to mobilize and mm. to deconstruct and to move in that particular space mm. and also hopefully serve as a venue for identifying fellow travelers, a phrase we've used before, mm. and, to, and to basically convene. Because if, if all fellow travelers for justice could come together, just think of how much we could get done. Mm. And right now we're kind of isolated and, and some, are, some are scared to be labeled in particular ways. Some, some don't know what to do. Some don't know where to go. And so, yo, I'm like, I see we shine in a beacon to try to get some assistance. So one, Spike, if you out there listening, holler at us, because this is definitely <laughs> film worthy. And you know it is, my brother. I've been wanting to get with you for a long time. So just holler. Now, the other thing, science, is this, this last point I want to make. You know this, science. Labels are easy, science. It's you, you, you this, you that, a label is easy. Complexity Multidimensional is hard, brother. Mm. How you do it the hard way and keep people's attention, keep them engaged, man. Once we once we sort of get the technology and we start moving the Ptolemy boxes around and we say we got three dimensions, three questions. How you keep people dialed into that, man? Complexity is hard, brother. Labels are real easy. It is. I mean, one, this is this is why discrimination and inequality and inequities of power persist for so long. Mm. 
Because in order to get your way out of that, you need to think your way out. Mm. And thinking is hard when you got rent to pay and mm. you got noises and you got, I mean, one of the things I noticed immediately upon leaving, leaving Manhattan and leaving kind of like poor neighborhoods, we lived uptown, right? It's like, um, wealthier neighborhoods are quiet. Mm. <laughs> you, you got, you, you, you got, some, you got some time for reflection. Mm. You, you, got some, you got some space to kind of like find your voice or listen. And so getting to complexity is incredibly difficult. But I think, I mean, if you think of the tools that we have available to us, right, we have, we have, we have music, we have art, we have language, we have, we have math, we have all these tools that we can use to kind of like guide people through stuff. And okay, it might not be once that we have to guide someone through something. It might be multiple times that we have to do it. Or think of, think of how folks were, were in our class, right? It's just like, we had some very difficult concepts that we navigate through. And these kids are, these are college kids and they were still having some problems with it, but we were able to break it down in a way mm. that I think made things real for folks. And I think part of what we need to do is kind of like put in the time and the space and like walk through things. This is why, like, you know, we struggle with like Twitter, right? It's like, okay, I can't really get this. We can't really get, we can't really clarify the revolution in, in a hundred some odd characters. Mm. And like, that's just beyond that particular device, but we could signal in that spot to something that's a little bit more detailed or mm. something that walks you through the particularities of it. I mean, like, how is someone going to think about, okay, how are we going to take on capitalism? What is capitalism? Okay, how are we going to change democracy? Okay, what is democracy? I mean, so basically, we need to reconstitute. We need to reconstitute the thinking around the particularities and then piece them together in a way that helps lead to mobilization and inevitably justice. And so I think slow and steady, man, slow and steady. Slow and steady as she goes, man. I'm picking up my man, Captain Kirk, man, on the Enterprise, bro. You know, slow and steady as she goes, Scotty. Um... So, so look, man, we are far from done with this topic of reparations. In fact, I think we only scratched the surface and we we still need to think about what what the play looks like if we want to go after restructuring U.S. tax policy and constraining the unchecked uh, transmission of wealth that really substantially contributes to why the the gap, the wealth gap grows so dramatically uh, uh, from year to year, right? That it's, it's, it's that power, right, of compound interest, right? Science, the rule of, yeah. the rule of 72 that we yeah. learned about when we start making a couple of dollars. That's what we got to really get at. Exactly. But, uh, but I think I'm good for now, science, and that's a wrap, man. So just take us home. Yo, yo, thank you very much for that, man. Peace, you all. Thanks for checking us out. Please definitely go to our various venues listed in our outro. Um, if we don't go back to y'all in time, happy holidays. Everyone be safe in the meantime, but peace for now. Peace. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingthenowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, Doing Knowledge again. Um, that's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace. peace.